Well, good morning. Uh, it's a privilege to be with you today. I uh, just want to begin by making the comment that Pastor Chad schedules a series on the tough sayings of Jesus, shocking statements, things that scholars debate about, and then schedules a two-week vacation in the middle of it. I don't know what's up with that, but it's good to be with you. Uh, Ten days ago, my wife and I received a letter from the IRS, and in it we were informed that we uh, had miscalculated and kind of not declared all of our income for 2012, and that we owe the uh, federal government $4,000. I immediately called my accountant and my person who does our taxes, and we scheduled a meeting for last Wednesday. And so we met with uh, him and found out that the IRS was mistaken partly, but we were also partly mistaken. Um, uh, My income from Bethel is actually kind of divided now, and I didn't know this. This all happened in 2012. So I got W-2 for my, like, college income, which is what it's always been, one W-2. And that was reported to the IRS, but for some reason they didn't recognize that, which was, you know, like almost all my income. But then there was a small thing I taught one class at the seminary, and that was a separate W-2, and we had tried to go green, so we thought we would print our own and forgot to print that, didn't know we were supposed to. It was one of those things, right? So I left that meeting with uh, my um, accountant, and he said, you know, looks like you only owe a little bit of money on this one class for 2012, but, of course, during that meeting, we also were doing our taxes for 2013, and for the first time in our 26 years of marriage, For some reason, we did not withhold as much as we should have, and we will actually be owing some money. Fun little meeting. On the way home, my wife looks at me and she goes, what is up with all of this? And I said, honey, I'm preaching on paying taxes on Sunday. (laughs) And she looks at me with this look of, that's a really expensive sermon illustration. (laughs) Well, it is that time of year where we wrestle with this question of paying taxes and paying taxes to our government, and do we owe our government all of our taxes or not? And so I thought I would do a little bit of research, uh, and I found out um, from the IRS that about 15.5% of us as U.S. citizens actually cheat on our taxes. Now, cheating is not what we did where we accidentally didn't declare something. Cheating is actually that little dark line that you cross where you actually attempt to defraud the government. 15.5%. In 2010, there were about 280 million returns, and that meant about 37 million of those returns were fraudulent in some kind of way. 75% of us, uh, or of those who are uh, ones who cheat on our taxes, are actually individuals. Um, Some interesting little facts about that. Most of the individuals are middle-income earners, like us in this room. Cash-incentive businesses, uh, like restaurant work and being self-employed or being a handy person, um, are ones that often, you know, involve some kind of, you know, fraudulent stuff. And then I found out that doctors are the worst offenders. I wasn't really encouraged by that. I actually thought it would be lawyers, but it wasn't. (laughs) And I'm disappointed because I have a number of very close friends who are lawyers, and I wanted to use it against them, but that didn't work. All right, 25% of all the fraudulent returns are business ones, and the most common fraudulent 
expense or thing that happens is people over deduct for business related expenses like car and entertainment and that kind of thing. But in spite of all of that, 37 million returns a year, only about 2,000 people a year are actually convicted of some type of tax fraud. That means that it's not very likely if you cheat on your taxes, you'll actually go to prison for it. But it leads us to ask this question, doesn't it? Um, As Christians, um, we uh, are probably not going to cheat on our taxes, hopefully, but it does kind of raise this question of, like, do we owe the government, like, all of the taxes that are asked of us or not? Um, I mean, does it matter to God whether we declare our cash income or not? Does it matter to God if we over-deduct for expenses? Does it matter to God if we claim a dependent when we don't really have one or if we hide money in offshore accounts? Um, does it matter to God if we pay the money we owe? And does it matter if my wife and I pay the money we owe from 2012 and 2013? Today I want to wrestle with that question, what do we owe the government as Christians And I want to ask, do we owe the government all of our taxes? But I also want to kind of go beyond that a little bit because it raises this bigger question of what is our relationship to the government? What do we owe the government? Uh, Do we owe the government our taxes? But beyond that, I want to ask kind of two other questions that come somewhat out of this text and relate to, uh, I think, us and especially to me at least. And that is the question, do we owe the government our pledge, our allegiance? Pledge of Allegiance, even. And then do we owe the government military service? Because the question that I want us to wrestle with today um, really kind of surfaces out of this text of what do we owe God, what do we owe the government? And these other questions, at least, are ones that I've personally encountered. I'm a missionary kid. I grew up, actually, in Ecuador, South America. And in our little missionary kids' school out in the middle of the jungle, there were about 20 of us students, and um, we didn't learn the Pledge of Allegiance, uh, partly because maybe we were in Ecuador, not in the United States of America, and also because Wycliffe Bible Translators, this organization my parents were part of, is international, and so there were people that weren't Americans that, that are part of Wycliffe. And so, for whatever reasons, that didn't really grow up around, like, the Pledge of Allegiance. And then I came to the United States for eighth grade. And I still remember the first day of eighth grade, I went to homeroom. That's what we called it back then. Homeroom. And uh, the principal came over the loudspeakers and um, started to give the announcements for the day. And and then at the end, he said, let's all rise for the Pledge of Allegiance. And so all of my classmates stood up. And I thought, well, I should stand up. So I stood up. And all of my classmates put their right hand over their heart. And so I thought, well, I better do that. And then they said the words of the Pledge of Allegiance, which I didn't know at the time, right? Well, quickly, you know, you acclimate to your new culture and your new setting. And so I I learned eventually the Pledge of Allegiance. And, um, you know, 8th grade, 9th grade, 10th grade, uh, even most of 11th grade, every day began the same way, saying the Pledge of Allegiance. End of 11th grade. I came to a place where I really, for the first time, yielded my life to God. I asked God to not only be the forgiver of my sins, kind of my Savior, which I had done a lot already, I mean, like the fire insurance prayers. Anybody else ever done that? You know, so I had kind of done all of that. But I hadn't done the, 
Jesus, I want you to be the leader of my life. I want you to be my Lord, not just my Savior. And so at the end of my junior year in high school, I had this experience on a Sunday night in church where I hit my knees and I said, Jesus, I want you to not only be the forgiver of my sins, but the leader of my life. Next day, Monday morning, right? Hmm. Pledge of Allegiance time, stand. I had this moment where I was like, had my hand over my heart and I was going, huh, last night I just pledged my allegiance to Jesus. You know, kind of supreme allegiance in my life. And I'm like, God, should I be saying the Pledge of Allegiance right now? Like God and government for the first time kind of ever, like in my little 16-year-old mind, kind of came next to each other. And I wrestled with this question, like, if I'm pledging allegiance to the flag and all that, I mean, what does that mean in terms of my relationship with God? And I was 16 years old, and I was just very confused, and I didn't really know what else to do, what to do about it. And um, so I kind of muddled my way through my senior year. I don't know, some days I did, some days I didn't. I really didn't know what to do with all of it. And then I went off to college and didn't have to worry about it. Went to Bethel University. We didn't begin our day with that, you know. Didn't begin class with that. So, I mean, didn't really think about it. But I had this other thing that happened my freshman year in college. I turned 18 on October 11th. And back in that day, 1981, Um, you had to register for the draft. And you had to do it within three years of turning 18. And I suddenly had this other little, like, God and government little moment of these two things kind of bumping up against each other. And I wondered, you know, what about that? And I had become immersed in the Bible, and, and, uh, you know, I I was trying to understand the Bible and Jesus, and what does this all mean in terms of following Jesus? And even though I was a missionary kid, I really had never, like, you know, figured this out. And I knew the teachings of Jesus in regard to, you know, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. Like, what do I do with this, right? You know, if I register for the draft, does that mean I'm willing to serve in the military? I'm willing to take up arms. I'm willing to, you know, kill for my country. So I was kind of wrestling with all that, and I, I put off the decision. So you, but you had to register within three months of your birthday or else like, you were legally in trouble. So on January 11th, <laughs> I finally went in and registered because I really didn't know what else to do. And I had a wise friend who said, you know, just registering for the draft doesn't necessarily mean you, you'll you know, be drafted and doesn't necessarily mean you'll end up you know, having to take up arms and that kind of thing. So I had this kind of other moment of God and government. What do we owe the government? Do we owe the government our taxes? Do we owe the government our allegiance? Do we owe the government our willingness to take up arms or to fight for our country? Well, these are questions that if you've never kind of wrestled with God and government, we're going to kind of wrestle with a little bit today because the shocking saying of Jesus kind of takes us into that. And I think it's a good thing for us to wrestle with. I think it's a good thing because uh, those of you who are maybe born and raised in the United States of America and kind of accept America and, and kind of have a high view of America, which you should. It's a great country. I love living here. Thankful for it. But have you ever kind of wrestled with, I've lived outside the country, I've traveled outside the country, and you start to see these other countries and governments. And I think it's a good thing for us just as Americans who happen to be also Christians to kind of wrestle with. And so I think it's a good thing for us to do it. It's also a good thing because it's hard to know where government sometimes starts and where government ends and where God starts and where God ends. And what happens if these two actually come into conflict with each other? What do we do and how do we decide? Well, in our passage for today, um, we are going to be in the Gospel of Mark. 
And John Mark is the author, not John Mark who led us in worship today, but uh, a different John Mark uh, is actually the author of this gospel. He was a travel companion with Paul and then later with Peter, and he wrote down the stories of Jesus that Peter was telling. And so these are eyewitness accounts of what Peter himself saw. As we come to this story, it's also really important to know, it doesn't tell us this, but it does a couple of verses earlier, that this story takes place in the temple. This is really important because the temple was the place of worship for the Jewish people. Jesus himself was a Jew, and his followers were Jews, and they came to the Jewish temple, and they were there to worship. That's why they were there. And this is where this story takes place at. Another thing that's really important to know is that John Mark's going to mention some of the Pharisees and Herodians. That word some of uh, tells you it's a subset of a bigger group, and the bigger group were called the Sanhedrin. And this subset of the Sanhedrin come to ask Jesus these questions, and you need to know that these people are collaborators with the Roman government. They are working as religious leaders with the government, and in exchange for collaborating with it, there's a certain amount of freedom to run the temple, and there's a certain amount of freedom to worship at the temple that the Roman government is giving to the Jewish authorities. So they oversee that, but in exchange for it, Caesar, the Roman government, wants to keep the Jewish people from revolting. They were a very revolting kind of people. Not revolting like ugly, bad, but they just like to revolt a lot. In fact, in Jesus, leading up to Jesus' time, thousands and thousands of messiahs had come along and been killed by the Romans. And so they were trying to figure out a way, how do we keep these people happy? So they did this exchange, right? So these subset of the Sanhedrin come to ask Jesus questions. Another thing that's really important to know is that just a few years before this, um, there had been a revolt, and Roman put it down. And in putting it down... Rome had made Judea, which is kind of this region in and around Jerusalem and the temple, had made that into a separate, uh, direct state to the federal government. And what that meant was that Galilee, where Jesus was from, was like an independent state, and you paid taxes, you paid state taxes up there. But when you came to Judea and to Jerusalem and the temple, you came into a new tax code. (laughs) Because there you paid state taxes plus a new federal tax, an imperial tax that went directly to Caesar, and you had to pay that tax in Caesar's own money, money that he had coined. And this money actually had the images of Caesar on it. This is a Tiberius denarius. This is actually the Caesar at the time. His name is Tiberius, and you can see his picture on one side. And the inscription around his picture literally says, Tiberius Caesar... August, son of divine Augustus. August means like revered, to be worshipped. Son of God, Augustus. Now, his father's name was Augustus, but he had died, and when the Caesars died, they became gods. They became gods that you worship. And so this coin is literally saying that Tiberius is to be worshipped as a son of a god. On the back side, on the flip side of it, you see this image of a woman. And it literally says the inscription, High Priest. Now, there's kind of some debate as to who exactly this is, but most scholars think it's Livia, who is August's wife and Tiberius's mother, who also has died. And she is the high priest. She is the mediator between Augustus, the God, and Tiberius, the son of God. And when you mediate the messages from God to the Son of God, that means that the Son of God is doing the will of God. 
So on one side it says Tiberius to be worshipped as a son of God. On the other side it's basically saying Tiberius to be obeyed as one who does God's will. Now this is a lot of propaganda on one coin, don't you think? And Tiberius is kind of letting people know that he wouldn't mind if you worshipped him, right? Kind of thing. So this question that we're going to encounter in this story, while it's about taxes, it's not really mostly about taxes. It's about paying tribute or paying taxes to a Caesar who wants to be worshipped as a god. Is that a good idea? Is that a bad idea? Well, we're going to find out. So keep in mind this is happening in the temple. Collaborators with the Roman government are going to ask the question, and it's really about not taxes, but worship and pledging your supreme allegiance to someone other than God. Well, with that, I think we are ready to hear Mark chapter 12. And I want to invite you to stand with me for the public reading of our scriptures. Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him, in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God according to the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay Or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, Whose image is this? Whose inscription? Caesar, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, but give to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. Mark chapter 12, verses 13 to 17. You may be seated. In this story, The members of the Sanhedrin, this subset, come to try to uh, trick Jesus with this polarizing Republican versus Democrat, conservative versus liberal, Christian versus atheist, you know, democracy versus communism kind of question. In this case, the polarizing question is, which do you teach, Jesus? Do you choose and teach that we should pay taxes, which might get you in trouble because you're worshiping Caesar, and be accused of breaking the law? Or do you say, don't pay taxes to Caesar and then risk being accused of leading a rebellion? Jesus knows the hypocrisy of their question because these very people are collaborators. And so he says, hey, bring me a denarius. Let's have a look at it. And so someone, member of the Sanhedrin, has to stick their hand in their pocket and pull out one of Caesar's coins. And they bring it to Jesus. And there is this Tiberian denarius 
And Jesus says, let's have a look at it. And as they're looking at it, he says, hmm, look whose image is on here. And he asks them the question, really, actually, whose portrait is it? Whose inscription? He asks them, so they have to be the one to say, ah, Caesar's. So Jesus says, give back to Caesar, kind of like almost throw it back to him. (laughs) It's actually his. He minted it. It comes from his federal government. It's his. Give it back to him. And they must have thought for a moment, gotcha, Jesus You, like us in the Sanhedrin, you could be guilty of worshiping another god. But Jesus, faced with A or B, chooses a third way. Because he looks at them and he doesn't choose either of the polarized positions, but instead we read this in Mark chapter 12, verse 17. And let's read this verse out loud together. Then Jesus said to them, Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. Give back to God what is God's. What do we owe God? (laughs) Well, Jesus makes it quite clear in this passage that we owe God our taxes. To pay taxes to a Caesar who thought he was God and wanted to be worshipped as God is not worshipping God. And Jesus says, if you're going to live in Rome and enjoy Pax Romana, the peace of Rome and the security of Rome, if you're going to run and ride on Roman roads, you need to pay your taxes. It's just about that simple. But Jesus, faced with these polarizing options, doesn't choose either of them. He finds a way around it. And he says, pay your taxes, but give to God what is God's. Pledge your supreme allegiance to God alone. Never worship Caesar. Always worship God. So that means that for my wife and I, when it comes to our taxes that we owe still from 2012 and now for 2013, you kind of sense that I'm still a little worked up about that. keeps coming up, right? Uh, Guess what? We, We really need to, as Christ followers, pay all of our taxes. It doesn't mean that we endorse everything that the government is doing. It doesn't mean that they were endorsing Caesar as God by paying the imperial tax. But Jesus says, if you're going to live, if you're going to work, if you're going to enjoy the benefits of Rome, pay your taxes to Rome. If you're going to live and work and enjoy the benefits of the United States of America, pay your taxes to your state and to your government. It's not really that hard. It's pretty simple. But... What about our allegiance? If Jesus is saying, pay your taxes, but pledge your supreme allegiance to God alone, what about pledging allegiance to our country? Doesn't this maybe create a problem? Well, I did some research on the Pledge of Allegiance this week. I did the kind of research I tell my students never to do. I went to Wikipedia. And I learned some very interesting things. So according to Wikipedia, which I think is fairly accurate, I looked at the scholars who had spoken into this uh, conversation. It looked pretty good to me. But according to Wikipedia, the Pledge of Allegiance was written in in 1892 by Francis Bellamy. And Francis Bellamy was a Baptist minister, and we kind of like that part, but he was also, I was telling Craig this, and we had quite a little laugh. He was a Baptist minister who was also a Christian socialist. Today, we would call that an oxymoron. (laughs) 
He wrote the pledge in 1892. He wanted to see it used, um, kind of short, pithy kind of thing. And the original pledge, Bellamy's pledge, read like this. I pledge allegiance to my flag and the republic for which it stands, one nation indivisible with liberty and justice for all. It was a quick, easy thing. It took 15 seconds. Kids could learn it. It could be said in school. It's interesting, as a socialist, he actually weighed, instead of the words with liberty and justice for all, he thought about equality and fraternity for all. Hmm. That'd be interesting, wouldn't it? But he didn't go with equality because he knew that the state superintendents of education were opposed to equality for women and African Americans, so he went away from that. The practice of the pledge um, was never intended to be a vow or an oath. He clearly differentiated between them. And then he also, um, or, or it also kind of picked up steam in the states and eventually got recognized by uh, the national government in 1942. So the modified pledge, it was modified a little bit in 1942, is this, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America, to the republic for which it stands. One nation indivisible with liberty and justice for all. It sounds pretty familiar, but there's actually two words that are missing, and I want to come back to that in a second. Now, from 1892 till 1942... The pledging of the allegiance was also accompanied by the Bellamy salute. You didn't know this, did you? The Bellamy salute was that you held your right hand out, palm toward the flag, while you said the Pledge of Allegiance. Now, does that kind of remind you of something? (laughs) Yes. Heil Hitler, right? So guess what? During World War II, they changed the pledge to be, place your right hand over your heart. Well... These changes happened, but the most important change from our perspective as Christ followers, I think, happened in 1952 through a joint resolution in Congress that changed things that made it possible, I think, for us as Christians to say this pledge. So the modern pledge reads, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America, to the republic for which it stands, one nation. So that was added in 1954 because of the influence of many pastors and theologians who wanted to ensure that our pledging of allegiance to our country would never usurp, it would never trump, it would never take the place of our supreme allegiance being to God alone. So my high school concerns as a 16, 17-year-old about pledging allegiance to the flag, uh, could it be a denial of my supreme allegiance to God? Not so much, no. Just kind of concerned about something that really I didn't understand at the time. And today, that's kind of added to the reality that it's actually voluntary as to whether you say it or not in school. So in today's passage, I think Jesus is saying, hey, pay your taxes, and you can even pledge your allegiance to your government if it's a government under God. But pledge your supreme allegiance to God alone. Which brings us to this question of military service that I faced as a freshman in college. Um, What do you do when God and government kind of start to collide? And what do you do if your conviction is that of being a pacifist? Pacifists are those who uh, wrestle with those teachings of Jesus to love your enemy and to pray for those who persecute you. And pacifists feel that in being part of a military and taking up arms and killing even your enemy, you're breaking what Jesus taught. Should a Christian who is a pacifist disobey God in order to obey the government? Or, if you're not a pacifist, you're probably a just war Christian. 
A just war Christian is a person who believes that Christian can serve in the military and even take up arms if the war is a just war. Does the Christian who is a just war Christian, do they owe the government military service in a war that is not just? There's been a lot of theological argument about what exactly makes a war just or not. It goes back all the way to the time of Thomas Aquinas, who was a great scholar and who wrote around this. But most everyone agrees that a just war is one in which you have been attacked or your allies have been attacked or the person is about to attack you, so you attack them. Well, what does a person do, whether you're a pacifist or a just war person, if the government asks you (laughs) to do something that you feel is actually against what God is asking you? For a pacifist, that means serving in any kind of military and war. For a just war person, that would mean serving in a war that you feel is not just. I think Jesus is quite clear in this passage that we are called to be a people who obey God rather than government when the two collide. Now, this is a covenant church, and I know the covenant quite well. And the covenant group of churches... Um, that you belong to teach and encourage people to hold different views on this. Just as we hold different views on infant baptism and adult believer baptism, and we say we're not going to divide over those, that's another one that we kind of hold in tension. And if you wonder about that and want to see position statements, you can go on the Covenant website and you can read all about it. But here's the thing that I want us to be thinking a little bit about. Thankfully, we live in a country where we have a status when it comes to military service called conscientious objector. And so a person who's a pacifist can say, I don't want to participate, and the government recognizes that. Or a person who says, "Ah, this isn't a just war, I'm not willing to participate in that, you can do that, though often those people are um, sometimes viewed as unpatriotic. But thankfully, we live in a country where that is the case. But the covenant group of churches, which you belong to, teaches and encourages people to hold either pacifist or just war. But it doesn't teach or encourage people to hold what I would call a blind patriotism position. (laughs) It doesn't encourage people to blindly be willing to do anything for country, no matter what God has to say. And I think this is the heart of what Jesus is doing in this passage. He's saying, if your supreme allegiance is to God, then that means you have to sometimes wonder about what's going on with your government a little bit. Jesus doesn't teach, doesn't encourage kind of this blind patriotism because blind patriotism is giving to the government what we go to God alone. So as I draw to a close this morning, I want to ask us a couple of questions. If Jesus is saying, pay your taxes, then I need to ask you this question. (laughs) Do you pay your taxes? Do you pay all of your taxes? Or are you part of the percentage who cheats on their taxes? I believe that Jesus very clearly indicates that if we live in this country, we enjoy its benefits, we are responsible to pay taxes for it. And that doesn't mean we decide on a certain percentage of those taxes that we'll pay because the government is doing the things that we want it to do. 100% seems to be the way Jesus goes here. He doesn't say, hey, pay part of it to Caesar for the stuff that you kind of like and then the other part that you don't like, like trying to worship him as God. You don't have to worry about that. It doesn't seem to have any loopholes to me. The other question I think we have to ask ourselves, if Jesus is saying, 
pay your taxes but pledge your supreme allegiance to God alone is what have you pledged your supreme allegiance to? Yourself, maybe? Maybe subtly, over time, it's become your work. Your family, maybe. Maybe a church. Maybe your country. Or have you pledged your supreme allegiance to God alone? Pay your taxes, Jesus says. But in doing that, in your relationship with government and all these other things we wrestle with that the enemy invites us to pledge allegiance to, be careful to preserve that God is the one receiving your worship, your supreme allegiance. I'm pretty convinced that over time, all governments, even really good governments, kind of drift towards wanting our worship. The propaganda machine, even in the best country, invites us to offer a kind of blind patriotism. It welcomes us to pledge our supreme allegiance to our country. So, for instance, when Hitler rose to power in Nazi Germany, he declared himself supreme civil leader and forced all the church leaders to submit to him as the supreme spiritual leader of Germany, too. He was literally called the Reich Bishop, Germany's bishop. There were a few, however, who saw this as idolatry. While most German Christians kind of raised their hand and blindly went along and said, Heil Hitler, there were a few who saw this as idolatry. Pay taxes, even to Hitler? Yes. Pledge supreme allegiance? <laughs> To Hitler? Absolutely never. This movement of refusal to pledge supreme allegiance to Hitler came to be called the White Rose Resistance Movement. Most all of the people in that movement paid with their life for their decision to obey God rather than government. I wonder if I had lived in that place and at that time Faced with that decision, if I would have been one of the crowd of Christians who raised my arm and pledged supreme allegiance to Hitler as he went by in his motorcade, or if I would have stood out in the crowd holding a white rose with my arms folded, unwilling to raise my arm because I had pledged my supreme allegiance to God alone. I really hope I would have been part of the White Rose Resistance Movement. And I wonder if, or maybe even when, the day comes in this country that our government demands worship and supreme allegiance. I wonder if that were to happen if my children or my grandchildren will lift their arm and pledge allegiance, supreme allegiance to the government, or if they will start the White Rose Resistant Movement 2.0. Because they had already pledged their supreme allegiance to God alone. I really hope they will.
Will you pray with me? God, as we gather in this place to worship and to declare your worth and your greatness, we come to pledge our allegiance to you, that our supreme allegiance is to you alone. We have done so in song, and we will do so again, but even as we come to give our tithes and our offerings, receive them, we ask as another symbol, another act of pledging our supreme allegiance to you alone. We ask that you would receive it. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, amen.